Shalom, and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm your host, Evan Gottesman. And I'm Margot Nykirk, and we are recording from New York. And today we're joined by Ofer Zaltzberg. Ofer Zaltzberg has been a senior analyst in the International Crisis Group's Arab-Israel Project since 2010. He's covering the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and Israel's relations with its neighbors. He also leads a religious peace-building work stream, working primarily with prominent conservative and right-leaning Jewish and Muslim religious authorities. Ofer, thanks for joining us. Gladly. So... The topic that we want to address today is one that's very close to Israel Policy Forum's work, which is the subject of West Bank annexation. But there's one part of the West Bank that has been in the news and talk of annexing it has been at the top of the agenda for Benjamin Netanyahu and potentially even the Trump administration in the United States. And that is the Jordan Valley. We've seen discussions between Netanyahu and President Trump and with Secretary of State Mike Pompeo where the Jordan Valley and Jordan Valley annexation is reportedly on the agenda. So just to start off, when we say the Jordan Valley, what area are we specifically talking about and why is that specific region so important? Great. So this is a multifaceted answer, I'm afraid. It's the territory that lies immediately to the west of the Jordan River, between uh, present-day Jordan and uh, the West Bank, occupied West Bank, and then further to the West Israel. From a biblical historical point of view, for, for Israelis, Israeli Jews, this is Judea and Samaria, resonates very deeply. Geographically, it runs along the Jordan River, an important uh, marker of borders, but also a source of water. And in more modern history, this uh, labor, the labor movement in Israel, labor Zionism, established a kibbutzim there after uh, 1967 when Israel took over the West Bank. And uh, as I've mentioned, in international law, it is occupied territory. So many things come to mind when uh, one looks at it, including the Palestinian population that is there, the settlements that are there. It's um, an area in which there is life and agriculture. And about how many settlers are in the Jordan Valley and how many Palestinians? Because this is somewhere that's kind of on the edge of the territory. It's more sparsely populated than some of the urban centers, no? Yes, it's uh, more sparsely populated, indeed. The assessment is that there are something like uh, 65,000 Palestinians, as far as I know, and uh, roughly 15,000 uh, Jews. We hear talk from the Jordan Valley as, especially from the security establishment, that it's crucial for Israel's, or maintaining Israeli stability and Israeli surveillance. So can you talk a little bit about why the different security circles view the Jordan Valley as so crucial to Israel? And how does the general public perceive annexation of the Jordan Valley? And I would just add one part to that question. We hear from the security establishment in Israel that the Jordan Valley is essential to Israeli security, but is that the same as them supporting Jordan Valley annexation? So from a security standpoint, there are two main issues. One is uh, controlling that area in terms of cross-border commerce, trafficking, smuggling, uh, attackers that will try to sneak in. And this relates, therefore, to patrolling and to maintaining uh, this as an impermeable border. And the second issue is really about um, strategic depth to the east. And there is still a concern in Israel, a long-term concern, that uh, Israel's longest border to the east will um, again see the emergence of um, 
threats, military threats, attacks at Israel launched from that side. One of the major achievements of the Israeli-Jordanian peace treaty is uh, the Jordanian commitment to ensure that no foreign army that can threaten Israel will be in the territory of the Jordanian kingdom, or that nor that Jordan will enter into alliances with uh, countries or organizations that are hostile to Israel. In the 80s, there was a concern about the Iraqi army attacking Israel from that area. Israel is very exposed there in terms of the geography area. Uh, so these are the two main things. In the defense establishment, therefore, the main view is that it should be what they call a defense border of Israel rather than a political one. So there is a desire to have there a relatively small force, Israeli force that continues to patrol the area, something like hundreds of soldiers, including additional observation points. And this could be done in tandem with the Palestinian security forces, Jordanian ones. It doesn't have to be exclusively Israeli, and it doesn't have to be highly conspicuous. So there are ways to do it uh, so that uh, this is quiet, it's not uh, a finger in the eye of uh, Palestinians. However, from an ideological point of view, as you know, there are many Israel who would like to see the entire area of Judea and Samaria, the West Bank, uh, being annexed into Israel. They would often use the two uh, security-related um, arguments I've mentioned in order to explain why the Jordan Valley and the West Bank uh, more generally should be annexed to Israel. But it would seem that when Netanyahu is speaking about Jordan Valley annexation today, he's sort of conflating two items. He has the security argument, which is being pushed forward, as you said, not necessarily as a means to see the Jordan Valley integrated politically into the state of Israel. And he's bringing in the ideological component of having the West Bank or Judea uh, Judea and Samaria integrated into Israel. Correct. Uh, And this is uh, something he's advocating now in the context of elections, uh, recurrent elections in our case. He certainly didn't take this view uh, during most of the time in which he was prime minister. One of the reasons of that is also that uh, annexation uh, would have um, potentially dramatic effects on uh, Jordan. And specifically, there is a concern that it would weaken the king's hold over the kingdom, either in the lesser uh, kind of threat that uh, it would make it harder for him to curb attacks at Israel from Jordan by militant Palestinian groups or Iran-backed ones or whatever it is, or more severely in the long term, that it would weaken his hold over uh, Jordan, uh, which has a Palestinian majority, it seems, in the population, because annexation would be viewed by Jordanians as closing the horizon for Palestinian statehood altogether. And Jordan, which currently has the Hashemite character, the Hashemite royal kingdom, balances the two main populations, the majority Palestinians and the minority Transjordanian Bedouin. And the kingdom will come under, uh, let's call it, democratic pressure of the Palestinian majority. And this is a concern for Israel, and that was was a major concern in Netanyahu's point of view, because it could precisely unravel the achievements of having Jordan to the east, keeping in place, as I've mentioned, the strategic depth to the east. The strategic depth, in fact, means that no foreign army can come anywhere near Israel. They have to be in Iraq to be close to Israel. Uh, this is very significant from uh, the perspective of conventional warfare. Netanyahu, therefore, also voted in favor of the agreement in 1994 when it was ratified in the Knesset. And we are seeing him shift the position only during the elections in the last few months, specifically five days before the April elections actually took place. So it seems that he's mostly guided by electoral considerations rather than uh, policy ones. So 
clearly, based on what you've said, the relationship between Israel and Jordan is also very crucial to Israeli security in addition to Israel's position or presence in the Jordan Valley. But Israeli-Jordanian relations don't seem that healthy right now. We're in a moment where we just passed the 25-year anniversary of the Israel-Jordan Peace Treaty, and there wasn't really any kind of official commemoration. This year has also seen controversies over the arrests of Jordanian citizens in Israel and Israelis in Jordan. And we also saw the termination of a land lease deal under the Israel-Jordan Peace Treaty that had allowed Israeli farmers and their employees to easily access plots in two small tracts of land inside of Jordan. So just to bring all of this together, it seems that this talk of Jordan Valley annexation is the culmination of a really bad year in Israel-Jordan relations. So we've talked about the idea that there could be consequences to uh, Jordan Valley annexation. What do you see those being? If, If Israel somehow moved ahead, and began the process of formally annexing the Jordan Valley tomorrow. What do you think the fallout would be specifically for the Israel-Jordan relationship? It seems that it will uh, dramatically accelerate, indeed, the nosedive that we are seeing. From um, First, from a Jordanian point of view, as I've said, this is about whether there are any prospects for Palestinian statehood. The king is hoping to find some remedy for this demographic problem within Jordan through Palestinian state, be it by some of the Palestinian Jordanians actually relocating to a Palestinian state on the other side of the Jordan River, or staying in Jordan for the most part, but with Palestinian citizenship. Second, by not having a, the prospects of a Palestinian state, uh, from the king's point of view, there is a risk to an, the second pillar of his legitimacy inside Jordan, which is his custodianship over the Al-Aqsa Mosque, uh, his role as a defender of Muslim interests uh, at the third uh, holiest site to Islam. And um, a concern that in the absence of Palestinian statehood, Israel will assert itself also at the holy site, uh, or uh, do things in a way that will uh, place uh, other Muslim countries there. And uh, for these two major reasons, uh, the king views this as an existential uh, threat for the Hashemite character of Jordan. There is a concern about some Palestinians uh, wishing to migrate eastwards if there is Israeli annexation, and uh, Jordan is already in a very difficult situation economically, socioeconomically given uh, refugee flows from uh, Syria, given all that it absorbed from the Iraq war in uh, the last few years, and he doesn't see how uh, he will be able to cope with more. But I think it goes even uh, deeper um, in the sense that he's basically a concern that uh, it will mean a revision of the Arab-Israeli peace and security architecture, meaning the two peace agreements, both the Israeli-Jordanian one and the Israeli-Egyptian one, were both anchored in... um, a promise of all sides to move towards Palestinian national self-determination. And annexation is viewed as contrary to that. In fact, most Jordanians and Egyptians, even though the agreements do not say that, view them as ones in which Israel committed to Palestinian statehood. And annexation is viewed as an abrogation of such a promise. And you're seeing more and more Jordanians asking themselves, what in fact are we gaining from this treaty? We are doing this despite the fact that Israeli occupation of Palestinians continues. And even though there have been some significant things happening, also positive ones in the bilateral relationship, primarily in the field of um, Israeli gas exports to Jordan and more recently to Egypt, and uh, matters that relate to water that Israel provides to Jordan and Jordan to Israel as part of the peace treaty, other things have been blocked and unraveling. 
And annexation will basically make palpable to everyone the key issue. Are Israeli and Jordanian interests shared or divergent? And it will show that fundamentally in terms of the vision that the two states have for the region and for the relationships between them, they are divergent. And uh, we are seeing op-eds in uh, Jordan in the last few weeks coming from people very close to government who start to depict Israel as an enemy for the first time uh, for these specific uh, authors. So we are seeing that the mere uh, raising of the possibility of annexation is leading to a significant shift in uh, Jordanian, uh, you know, in the Jordanian political class and how they see Israel. And this uh, occurs uh, for negative things if this indeed will happen. That would seem to be very disturbing for the the future of the Israeli-Jordanian relationship because if more people are falling into the point of view in Jordan that Israel and Jordan have divergent interests, that's only going to compound the problems associated with the popular anti-normalization movement, which is very big in Jordan. So there's a lot, I think, for us to watch on the Israel-Jordan relationship front. But you mentioned earlier that the talk of Jordan Valley annexation has to do with domestic politics in Israel. And I agree with that. And I want to return to it. Right. There's less than a week away from this unprecedented 21-day extension for NEMK to form a government. Netanyahu said that he wants to go first in a unity government rotation so that he can fulfill his promise of annexing the Jordan Valley. And there were even reports of a draft agreement with Kaholavan that included Jordan Valley annexation, but that fell apart. So what do you make of all of this, Ofer? So in the first round of elections this year, Blue and White uh, did its best to appear to be um, like the Likud in terms of uh, so-called hawkishness. And when the Likud did uh, surface such ideas, Blue and White just said, we actually share the same, they used vague words, but basically said, we share the same agenda. There is no left and right in Israel and so on. What happened in the last few days forced Blue and White to clarify their position. As you have said, um, Netanyahu's position that he should be in power for the first six months, and this is when he will uh, perform annexation. And uh, they basically went against it explicitly and have said that he could have done this in the last uh, 14 years in which he was prime minister. Also, Mr. Trump is in the White House already for several years. Why, why is he doing it only now? This is clearly electoral. And that, in fact, their view isn't that uh, the Jordan Valley should be annexed, but it should be a security border of Israel and that it should only be become such a security border uh, as a result of an agreement with Palestinians. So we are really seeing two separate visions emerging in the sense of uh, geostrategy and uh, regional diplomacy. One of them is ironically the one that the Prime Minister has been promoting in the last decade, and it is now identified with blue and white. And the other one is Netanyahu at the head of the Likud. And the Likud, I have to say, has shifted. The Likud uh, is no longer mostly um, dominated ideologically by revisionist Zionism and the teachings of Jabotinsky. What we are seeing is an ascendant ideological force within the Likud is uh, religious Zionism by Cook rather than uh, Jabotinsky. And a deep ideological religious attachment to the West Bank in the sense of the Jordan Valley, uh, sorry, in the sense of Judea and Samaria and within it, the Jordan Valley. And this uh, pushes uh, Likud policy into realms that deal less well with the pragmatic needs of uh, Israel. And we are seeing at the same time that blue and white don't seem to offer a strong enough answer for such religious Zionists or for other constituencies that care deeply about these areas in terms of them as a homeland and as a biblical area. So we are seeing a more sharply divided uh, cleavage between the two parties, which is likely to play itself uh, also publicly, if indeed we are going for third elections. 
Right. The Kakholavan response to this, as you mentioned, they said that it should be a security barrier. They did mention annexation, but they said annexation would be part of a political settlement. And that caveat would seem to kill any possibility of annexation actually occurring under their watch because no party outside of Israel and maybe the Trump administration would agree to it, certainly not Jordan or the Palestinian Authority. You mentioned that Kakholavan in taking this position is not offering a strong response for religious Zionist voters. Do you think that they need to offer some kind of response that would fit that bill? Or do you think that it's important that they are presenting an actual alternative to Likud? I think it's uh, very important that they are presenting an alternative to the Likud and uh, indeed uh, crucial, crucial for Israel's uh, strategic well-being and crucial for Israel's neighbors. If we will see an unraveling of the Israeli-Jordanian relationship, this uh, can be detrimental also to Palestinians. I, w- I would like to explain. Israeli-Palestinian negotiations, when they happened, took as a premise the fact that Israel trusted Jordan on security in terms of intelligence cooperation, in terms of the way that the other side of the river will be managed by Jordanian officials. And it made it easier to deal with the fact that Palestinians will deal with some aspects of the western side of the same border because Israel trusted the ones on the eastern side. If Israel will no longer trust uh, the ones on the eastern side, basically what we will see is the Israeli defense establishment insisting that if there is Palestinian statehood, Israeli military presence must be much more intrusive. Uh, So I think that such a position is very necessary in terms of the geopolitics. The question is whether there is a way to frame it, to complement it with uh, modalities which will make it more uh, palatable to those that do care about uh, history and religion. How do you think that you could frame it in such a way where you could reconcile the Kaholavan political policy position on this with the perspectives of people who may feel an emotional or religious or philosophical tie to this area? Um, it's very hard first, and we need to acknowledge it. There are, there are so hitherto really unexplored uh, notions, and it's, so it's very hard to say something definitive. One of them relates to the degree to which Palestinians would be able to recognize uh, in, in uh, terms of uh, reciprocal uh, recognition that uh, these parts are, parts are viewed as part of the Jewish homeland and for Israel to recognize uh, areas lying to the west of the Green Line also as parts of the Palestinian homeland. Because currently the paradigm through which a future uh, two-state agreement is perceived in Israel is as if there is uh, not just a sharp territorial uh, separation, but uh, one in which there is negation of the historical importance of the areas that will be excised from uh, the territory Israel currently controls. And as we all know, these are areas that are particularly important uh, historically and religiously when we open a Bible. The second thing is looking at creative modalities that essentially explore the possibility that Prime Minister Salam Fayyad and former uh, chief uh, Palestinian negotiator uh, Abu Allah uh, have raised all kinds of modalities that relate to whether Israeli Jews, specifically settlers, would be able to stay under Palestinian sovereignty, under Palestinian rule. Are there ways to mitigate that? Is there a way to have uh, joint Israeli-Palestinian mechanisms for uh, dealing with this? How do you conduct a transition? All of these issues were not uh, explored seriously from a policy point of view. And uh, perhaps there is a need to do that in order for the more pragmatic policies to align themselves with the, the deep identity needs that people feel. And obviously the same things should be done in order to deal with the identity and religious needs also of Palestinians, specifically Palestinian Muslims. So I actually want to turn the subject around a little bit. I want to quickly look at the U.S. perspective on annexation. 
Last month, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo had announced that the U.S. does no longer view Israeli settlements as inconsistent with international law. After this, Netanyahu immediately pushed forward a bill in Knesset that would annex the Jordan Valley. So where does this bill currently stand, especially as we're now in a transitional government? How early can MKs vote on this bill and can this come into effect pretty quickly? So for, for me, just a, on factual, Netanyahu's push to it was very symbolic. It wasn't really a legal move. From the U.S. point of view, which indeed is very significant, we are seeing, I think, a few things. First, just we are seeing the U.S. under Trump, under President Trump, paying much less attention to Jordan in general. There hasn't been a U.S. ambassador in Amman for the last three years. One was finally nominated last month, and it will take several months until he will be in position. And Jordanian interests were taken to a much lesser extent into account. There has been a shift coming from D.C., but also to an extent from Netanyahu and Riyadh, taking Israeli-Arab relations into basically relations between Israel and the Arab Gulf states and away from the traditional Israeli-Jordanian and Israeli-Egyptian relations, which were taken um, for granted. Moreover, as I told you, Israeli-Egyptian and Israeli-Jordanian relations, even more so, were premised, uh, were designed in a way that took into account the future emergence of a Palestinian state. And going against it, supporting a policy that goes against it or goes against the Palestinian state in the traditional parameters, really violates the basic commitments of these treaties and their very spirit. So in this sense, the U.S. shift is viewed as uh, detrimental by many uh, Jordanians on the one side and most of the Israeli defense establishment, because it erodes not just what will happen between Israelis and Palestinians, which is already a very big thing, but also the two most important uh, peace treaties Israel has managed to sign in its uh, 70-something years of existence. Uh, Annexation now um, legally is basically there are two ways of doing it fundamentally. One is really through uh, legislation to pass a new law, and it seems highly unlikely that this can happen with a transition government when there is no uh, agreed coalition and given its um, legal limitation. The second thing is really through an order that essentially is what, uh, what Israel did when it applied Israeli law to East Jerusalem, and the term indeed is therefore applying Israeli law, and it is about, it's something that the interior minister can do takes a map and says that on these areas on the map, from now on, Israeli laws and regulations apply. It avoids the explicit term of annexation. There is a big debate about whether it, in fact, uh, is equal to annexation or not. In the case of East Jerusalem, the differences have been that East Jerusalemites were not forced to take up uh, Israeli citizenship, that uh, East Jerusalemites, even though Israel applied all of its laws there, continue to study in schools where the Israeli curricula is not being taught. So it seems that de facto there are uh, differences in the terms at least of how Israeli applies its policies then, whether according to international law it's annexed or not is a legal question. This is Israeli civilian law. So the significance is that it would no longer be passed through the military governor in the occupied territories. Yes, exactly. So like in East Jerusalem, the significance is that all Israeli laws will apply through the Knesset and that the ones that have already been legislated by the Knesset will apply in these areas and the new legislation can be done through the Knesset. And obviously from a democratic point of view, there is a huge deficit here because it means that the Knesset elected only by Israelis will be legislating for areas in which the population, the Palestinian population, is unable to vote to the Knesset. I want to return to Margot's point about the United States role here. The Jordan Valley annexation talk seems to bring into conflict 
two sides of Netanyahu. You have Netanyahu, who is the kind of status quo guy, or at least in terms of annexation, he's more into creeping than leaping annexation. And then you have Netanyahu in crisis mode, who just wants to make it from day to day or week to week and extend his tenure in the prime minister's office through whatever means necessary. But even though he he put forward this bill in the Knesset that Margot brought up, and as you correctly pointed out, is sort of a symbolic move, he still seems to try to be uh, courting American support for this. Uh, he met with Mike Pompeo in Portugal after he couldn't meet with him on the sidelines of the NATO summit, where it seemed like uh, Netanyahu might not have been so welcome. It really looks like he, he's pushing for American approval of uh, Jordan Valley annexation. Do you think he needs American go-ahead for this? And what do you think the significance of uh, U.S. green light for Jordan Valley annexation would be? These are uh, great questions. Uh, first, yes, I agree in terms of the split personality of Netanyahu on this. Really, Netanyahu seems to calculate that promising annexation of the Jordan Valley will help him electorally. This is actually far from obvious because he already did that, again, five days before the initial elections, and we saw that it did not uh, bring him any more votes even though he promised to do this and reportedly also actually gave an order to take this forward and the senior Israeli officials blocked him. And we are seeing that, you can put it this way, that Israelis were already offered the Jordan Valley on a silver platter. There was no condemnation from the White House. And the Israelis basically rejected the offer in terms of the population writ large, meaning centrists did not join the right as a result of this. And nevertheless, Netanyahu continues to pursue this, thinking that it can be a game changer. I think there are reasons to doubt that. I think that uh, the Israelis that did not vote for uh, the Likud uh, all know that he entertains this relationship with President Trump, with Secretary Pompeo. They've seen all of the images together. So I think one should not overstate the degree to which it will actually be helpful for Netanyahu electorally. Having said that, I think it could be very destructive from a policy point of view. And he does seem to calculate things this way. So there is a double risk here. Even those who would like to, uh, specifically those who would like to help Prime Minister Netanyahu, may find themselves, in fact, uh, doing very little to help him while causing real harm to the security of the state of Israel. Uh, my impression is that Netanyahu actually sees a linkage between this specific issue of annexation of the Jordan Valley and what will be presented if and when in the diplomatic plan that the Trump administration has been preparing. And Netanyahu has clarified in the last uh, two weeks that uh, the reason that he would like to head the government in the next six months is not only for the annexation of the Jordan Valley, but also in order to be the Israeli prime minister that welcomes the so-called uh, deal of the century. And it seems that it's very important for him that when the, um, it's not necessarily a full deal and maybe not 40 pages would be published, but only the main ideas in a notional way in a speech by the president. But essentially, he would like to have an, uh, himself as prime minister in order to welcome that and to ensure that Israel does not ignore it, postpone it, or something of the sort. And it seems from the way that he presents these ideas that that plan at least allows for Israeli annexation of the Jordan Valley. And as you know, there is a major uh, disagreement we've just discussed over all of this, whether it, all of this is desirable or not for Israel. The rumor here in Israel is that when uh, Mr. Gantz met um, Mr. Kushner and heard uh, some of the main ideas of the plan, he politely declined. So it may well be that the identity of the Israeli prime minister will also matter uh, if and when the U.S. presents uh, the main ideas of its plan. 
and therefore whether it will at all present them. So I want to ask one final question to wrap up our discussion. Looking ahead, how would you ideally like for Israel, the U.S., Jordan, and the Palestinians to approach this question of the status of the Jordan Valley? For the U.S., I think that the best thing would be to return to a position of a mediator between two U.S. allies, Jordan and Israel, as Republican and Democratic administrations have done in the past, as soon as there are problems. We are seeing that since the Jerusalem proclamation, the White House lost the ability to help Israelis and Jordanians when there are crises. And as a result of this, when there are problems, we are seeing the relationship in free fall. Secondly, at the regional level, there is a need to shift away from the notion that Israel can build a strong relationship with the Arab Gulf allies while ignoring the Palestinian question and while taking for granted Israeli-Jordanian relations because Israel's relationship with Jordan is intimately related to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. This is something that should come not only from the US and Israel, but also from Saudi Arabia. Thirdly, there is a need to deal with the the Israeli-Palestinian issue that extends beyond this podcast. But those who deal with it need to understand that they are not trying to deal only with so-called with the future of Israelis and Palestinians, but also with that of Jordanians and other immediate Arab neighbors. Finally, the Israeli-Jordanian bilateral relationship has been neglected. There are many bilateral projects that have been frozen or not taken up. If it is the Red Dead Pipeline, 180 kilometers uh, to lead water from the Dead Sea to from the Red Sea to the Dead Sea, a major strategic project uh, that Israel and Jordan uh, and the PA have entered in a, in an agreement in 2013 and has been stuck since then. And if it is the Jordan Gateway uh, industrial zone and many other possibilities for cooperation in the fields of tourism, of economy. Jordan needs a lot of support, and some of these things can come through Israel, can come through cooperation with both Israelis and Palestinians. So in short, there is a need for a reset of Israeli-Jordanian relations, and uh, given how uh, intimately linked this is to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, it, will, uh, it is bound to have positive knock-on effects for, the, for Israeli-Palestinian peacemaking. Well, it looks like there's a lot for us to watch on this issue. There's the Israeli domestic politics front, the Jordanian position, the Palestinian reaction, and the perennial question of what the Trump administration's next move is going to be. Ofer, thank you for sharing your expertise with us on this issue. Thank you very much, Evan and Margo. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us on this episode, and we'll catch you next time. For our young professional listeners, we have a series of end-of-year IPF Atid gatherings across the country in Chicago, D.C., L.A., San Francisco, Brooklyn, and Manhattan, not in that order, and you should really check those out. You can learn more on our website at www.israelpolicyforum.org forward slash events. For attending, you'll get a new IPF Atid mug. This is a podcast, so we can't show it to you, but you'll just have to trust us that it looks really nice. You won't want to miss that. And for all of our listeners, it really helps us on the podcast if you can leave a review, hopefully a positive review, on whatever platform that you are listening to this program on. So again, thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.